If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Hi there, I'm Dave content director for the History Extra podcast. I hope you don't mind this little interruption. We've welcomed a lot more listeners to our podcast over the past few months, and we're delighted and really grateful to have you on board. Thing is, we'd love it if a few more of you headed over to our website, historyextra.com, to check out some of our content there. We have thousands of features covering a wide variety of historical topics on the site, from ancient Rome, through medieval Europe, and right up to the 20th century. We've just released some exclusive podcasts onto the site too. These are recordings of lectures given at our 2019 History Weekends, and they include talks from Dan Jones on the Crusades, Yanina Ramirez on Medieval Wonder Women, Nicola Tallis on Margaret Beaufort, and Peter Caddick Adams on D-Day. Just head over to historyextra.com forward slash exclusive hyphen podcasts to have a listen. I hope you enjoy them. And I hope you carry on listening to this podcast too. Thanks again. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, we've got a conversation about the history of working motherhood with historian Helen McCarthy. Helen's new book, Double Lives, looks at the ways in which British mothers have juggled work and childcare responsibilities since the Industrial Revolution. I called her to find out more. 
Your book looks at women's experience of working motherhood from the Industrial Revolution to the present day. What were some of the central themes that you encountered when you were looking at those experiences? A key central theme, of course, for any history of working motherhood is the interaction between women's lives as mothers and their lives as workers. And this is where the idea of double lives comes from, the the title of the book. Uh, And that's a central theme, the way that the unpaid labour that women do for their families Uh, looking after their homes, the embodied labour, if you like, of mothering itself, pregnancy, childbirth, uh, breastfeeding, how all of those things interact with and shape the dynamics and possibilities for women as workers. And that's really a central theme that I'm trying to follow right through the period. Uh, I mean, other themes that came up were questions about childcare. So obviously, if a woman is doing paid work and she has children, Uh, someone else needs to be caring for those children. So I was very, very interested in trying to track over time childcare solutions that mothers in different situations across different social classes, across different regions, how did they actually make that work? And that's that's a big sort of theme that goes right through the book. And one theme which I became very interested in and that I wasn't expecting to discover when I started on the research is women doing paid work in their own homes. So home-based work was something which mothers did right through the period. And I was very, very fascinated to follow that thread. And in fact, it's a thread that has become incredibly relevant and resonant today as we record this podcast amidst the lockdown caused by um, coronavirus. As well as those big recurring themes. There is a lot of change over the period you study in attitudes to women working and um, the amount of women working. One thing I found really interesting about the book was the changing motivations for women Mm. taking on work over time. What have women seek to gain from paid employment, um, mothers I should say, and how has that changed over time? So the big story is a shift from mothers going out to work under acute economic pressure, usually due to the absence of a male breadwinner. So either their husbands were unemployed, uh, underemployed, they may have been disabled, they may have absconded, they may have been dead. Uh, And that's a big theme. Uh, All of contemporary accounts really from the late 19th and early 20th century suggest that the majority of mothers are being sort of pushed into the labour market in order to support their families. By the later 20th century, there's a sense that although economic pressure is still a very important factor for many mothers who are at work, uh, there's there's a more expansive range of motives and meanings that paid work holds for mothers. Now, in the book, I I broadly tell that story, but I don't think it's quite as simple as that. There were always mothers, even in the 19th century, who went out to earn wages because they wanted to or because it, it, it had some significance and meaning for them beyond simply the economic pressure of having to feed and clothe and and shelter your families. So even in late 19th century industry, you find mothers who are very proud of their skills, who have a strong commitment or a sense of identification with their occupations. This is something that's very strong in the Lancashire uh, cotton industry, where working class women are doing skilled work as power loom weavers, and they have a very strong sense and pride in their skills. I think there you challenge the assumption that is often made that working class women 
or mothers worked because they had to, whereas middle class women worked because they chose to. That's right. And I I was very uh I was very keen to challenge that that binary because I think it is very reductive. And I think it, it flattens out the experience of working class women in the workplace, actually, by saying, well, they only did it because they had to, uh, because they were under acute economic pressure. As I say, actually, there's a whole world of, of sociability around the workplace, which working class mothers uh, participate in. Uh, there is the desire for financial independence, which wage earning can meet to some extent. And that isn't to say that mothers in the early 20th century are generally earning breadwinning wages uh, or are entirely independent, but just having a wage of their own, having some control over a small income does give them a greater sense of status and power and independence. And that's something which you do find little glimmers of uh, in the sources for the early 20th century. It becomes a much more important part of the story that women tell about why they go out to work later in the 20th century. You also make the point about society having um, a moral distinction almost between women who had to work and chose to work. Why was that so important? I was very interested in how wage-earning mothers fitted into the broader imagining of the British economy and of, of economic as well as social and moral order in the late Victorian imagination. And the wage-earning mother for late Victorian, early 20th century observers um, is a social problem, not just because she's, as they see it, violating the sacred duties of, of motherhood and neglecting her children, but she's also an economic problem because she's undermining uh, cap the capitalist economy, which ought to be delivering jobs to men, uh, high-paid, secure jobs, which allow them to be male breadwinners, to provide for their families uh, on a single wage. So the wage-earning mother uh, is uh, problematic because she seems to uh, to undermine this, this vision of economic order. And so women who go out to work because they don't have a male breadwinner and they're under acute economic pressure, in a way... Um, although that's seen as very, very undesirable, there is a sense in which uh, she, uh, she, you know, she's doing what she needs to do to look after her children. The woman, however, who goes out um, to work but is not under any sort of economic pressure, well, she is very much to blame because she is actively engaging in an antisocial act, which makes it harder for men to provide for their families. You mentioned their working mothers being seen as an economic problem. What have some of the other arguments been against mothers joining the workforce over this period? One major debate that really runs from the 1860s into the early 1900s is around infant mortality. So Victorians were very concerned about the high rate of death um, amongst uh, babies before the age of one. Uh, adult mortality was actually falling in the 19th century, but infant mortality was not. And there were contemporaries who linked this to women's wage, to the wage earning of mothers. And there was a belief that mothers who went to the factory to work instead of staying at home to breastfeed their babies were contributing to the problem of infant mortality. So that was a very uh, highly charged part of the debate uh, through the 
the later 19th century. It was one which was uh, always challenged because, in fact, the evidence was not conclusive. Uh, It seemed as though, in fact, infant mortality was high uh, amongst uh, in working class communities where there were high levels of poverty and there were housing problems because a great deal of infant mortality was caused by uh, insanitary uh, living conditions. So, uh, but it's very, but it very much fuels the debate against uh, against mothers going into the factory. So we've talked a lot about the nineteenth century now, um, and your book is structured broadly chronologically. How do we see this story? Has it been one of straightforward progress or has that progress been more patchy for working mothers? The book is not a triumphalist story of progress in the sense that it's not telling a story about mothers battling against inequality and then triumphing um, in the late 20th century. But it is, it's an optimistic story in the sense that I do see a shift taking place from working motherhood framed as a social problem towards working motherhood becoming accepted as a social norm. And this is something that happens in the second half of the 20th century, where the working mother becomes more of an ordinary figure, uh, an unremarkable feature of the social and economic landscape, a woman who's got Time, time on her hands because her children are old enough to go to school. Why shouldn't she go out and earn some money for her family? Uh, and I try to explain all of the sort of the broader social and economic uh, trends and developments that are underpinning this shift. But that, I think, is a broadly optimistic story in that it does remove some of the stigma Uh, attached to working motherhood. It doesn't, of course, mean that working mothers then enjoy workplace equality. It doesn't mean that there isn't still a problem around equal pay or a problem around the segregation of women into less prestigious and lower paying and lower skilled segments of the economy. But it does open up a space, I argue, for mothers to be uh, more open and more assertive about what paid work means to them. You mentioned there issues that women faced in the workplace of pay inequality and things like uh, job structures, for example. Perhaps we could just dig into a couple of those a bit more deeply. So what were some of the ways that women um, who had children were discriminated against in workplaces? Well, in many workplaces, women were effectively pushed out when they had children or when they were pregnant. Marriage bars were very um, uh, pervasive across large swathes of the economy right into uh, the 1940s. Most of them had to be lifted during the Second World War because women's labour was needed. But in the first half of the 20th century, it was actually very difficult if you wanted to work in the civil service, for example, if you wanted to have any kind of white-collar job in an office. Many factory jobs as well also uh, had marriage regulations where essentially if you got married, you were out, you had to resign. Uh, There was, of course, no paid maternity leave or right to reinstatement until the 1970s. So pregnant women were discriminated against all the time. Uh, And it was a social norm. It was just customary for pregnant women to be dismissed and to be sent home. Sometimes mothers would then be able to go back to the workplace, but they would be entirely reliant on whether the employer wanted to to extend that privilege to them. It was not a right. So that happened very late in the 20th century. Uh, And I think sort of more more broadly, there has always been uh, this very strong 
moral pressure on women to be looking after their children and to put their families first. And this means that any kind of, uh, any articulation or expression of ambition, I think, was deeply problematic for for a mother uh, right through the 20th century. So career women were seen as, single women could have careers and could pursue careers. But mothers, it was unnatural, problematic if they seem to want to pursue professional success and ambition. So the issues were societal as well as structural? Absolutely. Some of the the key themes that have emerged with women in the workplace have been the gender pay gap, first of all, and also um, part-time work. How did those issues affect mothers in particular? Mothers were always less likely to earn high wages because, and this is a connection to the part-time issue, because they were more likely to be working part-time. Regular part-time employment didn't really become established in the British British labour markets until the Second World War and after the Second World War. So it was quite common for mothers to earn casually, intermittently, perhaps to take on a few hours of charring each week, perhaps to take in some uh, laundry or sewing from na- from neighbours. A lot of home-based work that women were doing, a lot of the piecework that they might have been doing at home would have been around sort of quite flexible hours that they would fit in around their domestic responsibilities. Uh, and that meant that they weren't paying, that they weren't earning the sort of regular wage that you might earn if you were working full-time in a factory or in an office, which was much more... Uh, possible for younger unmarried women to do. So that, I think, helps to explain why mothers were at the bottom of the heap, as it were, when it came to pay. And of course, later in the 20th century, when mothers took time out of the workplace to bring up their children and then try to get back in, and this is something that does become more possible from the 1950s onwards, particularly as women are having smaller families and they're having more closely spaced families, it means that when they're in their late 30s or their early 40s, actually quite a lot of them are saying, well, look, I'd like to go back into the workplace now. But of course, the kinds of jobs that they can go back to uh, are not going to be at the same level uh, of the jobs that they left. But this is particularly true for professional women who might have given up work in their early early or mid-20s. And then when they try to get back in, they have to take part-time work. If they're doctors, they might end up doing locum work or they might end up doing, you know, a few... uh, Uh, baby uh, health clinics here and there. If they're a teacher, they might go back to doing supply teaching um, or just teaching, you know, a few days a week. And this, of course, has a big impact on women's earning power. A lot of the changes that you've brought up here, you've mentioned, happened during the Second World War. And a lot of people see the two world wars as a watershed time for women. What changes were brought about during that period and how lasting were they for working mothers? This is really one of the big debates in women's history, uh, the impact of of the First and Second World Wars on women's status. And historians have been really divided. I think I I see the Second World War as, as having a more important and lasting impact for mothers than the First World War. The First World War is important because it does give the opportunity for quite a number of mothers to enter munitions work. And this is well-paid work uh, and to earn quite a good wage for the first time. 
But that's taken away from them instantly uh, as soon as the war is over. Male trade unionists had already agreed with government uh, that these jobs would be protected for men when the men come back. And that's exactly what happened. And women are pushed back into the lower paying, less skilled, feminised sectors of the economy like domestic service. In the Second World War, uh, there's a similar process happens with demobilisation, with women being pushed out of those higher paying, skilled jobs in engineering and munitions and so on. But what also happens is that you get the, uh, the one of the legacies of the Second World War is the lifting of the marriage bar. Uh, most employers who had lifted the marriage bar during the Second World War do not uh, reinstate it. And you also get a legacy of part-time work, which I've already mentioned. So part-time work is introduced during the Second World War in industry in order to help with the mobilisation of housewives and mothers to get them into the factory doing essential war work but at the same time having time to look after their homes and families. After the Second World War, part-time work is something which stays. And this is a lot of this is to do with the fact that there are labour shortages in the economy. Employers can't recruit enough single women to do full-time work. So they offer part-time work to older housewives and mothers. And although part-time work is not a ticket to equality, uh, it certainly doesn't provide equal pay um, or opportunities for career progression. But nonetheless, it gives a lot of mothers a foothold in the labour market and it contributes to this longer term shift that I've already described towards seeing working motherhood as a social norm, as something that's just quite ordinary. Moving forward to the 1950s, I was surprised to read that you describe it as a watershed moment for working mothers because traditionally I think of it, it conjures up images of housewives to me. What factors were at play in the 1950s that made it such an important time for the way that working mothers were perceived? Yes, you're absolutely right. The watershed moments in the conventional histories of women in the 20th century are the Second World War and then the 1970s with uh, feminism. But the 1950s is very important. There are demographic shifts that have been in play through the 20th century that really then come to fruition after the Second World War. So women are limiting the size of their families. Uh, by the 1950s, they also have better health. So they're better fed, they have better diets. The creation of the National Health Service means that there are much uh, better maternity services available. So when women reach their late 30s or early 40s and their two or three children are old enough to go to school, they are much more likely to be in a situation where they are relatively fit and healthy. Uh, they uh, have their children at school. They have a, a house that, that's not, uh, that, that doesn't require the kitchen floor to be scrubbed 10 times a day. They don't have a great big sort of open hearth uh, that they're cooking on. Uh, and it means that there's an opportunity for them to go back uh, to the workplace. And this combined with the conditions of full employment uh, and labour shortages in the economy, so employers are desperate to get women into the factories, into their offices, into their shops. These forces combine in the 1950s to create opportunities 
for wives and mothers, which are unprecedented. Uh, and that's why I see the 50s as being such a key turning point. And just one last point about the 1950s. Of course, we do associate it with ideal homes and with affluence and with consumerism. But for many families, in order to participate in that consumer culture, they needed a second income. So the wife who goes out with her little part-time job and brings in some extra cash is then able to help her family to participate in that affluent society to, and to enjoy the fruits of uh, the consumer culture. You mentioned that a traditional moment in women's history is seen as the rise of second wave feminism in the 1970s. How did that intersect with this story? And also, what new issues emerged for women to deal with who wanted to be working mothers in the later 20th century? The 1970s are still really important because that is the decade where sex discrimination legislation is passed and equal opportunities becomes, if you like, an official ideology. So we have the Equal Pay Act, we have the Sex Discrimination Act, there's the Employment Protection Act of 1975, and that one's important because it introduces statutory maternity leave and the right to reinstatement for the first time. So that's a very key milestone in terms of women's maternity rights. Uh, and of course, it is the decade of second wave feminism, changes in the air. There are more challenging critiques of sexual politics as part of the, the general conversation. And I think that... What's important also in the 1970s is there is a greater questioning of what is men's work and what is women's work. And although we don't see an absolute revolution in terms of the kinds of jobs that women are doing or their presence at the top of professions and the top of, of industry, the Sex Discrimination Act does make it very, very difficult for employers to say, as they had said before, oh, this is a job for men. So graduate trainee schemes, for example, in the 50s and 60s, quite often would just simply say, you know, this is not open to women. This is a, this is a trainee scheme for men because this is about uh, training up young men who are going to go on to have lifelong careers in this professional, this corporation or this industry. Uh, and there's evidence that women coming out of universities in the 1970s um, are very hostile to this notion that there are some graduate careers that are for men and some graduate careers that are for women. And I think that does then really change things for, for mothers, because when those women go on to get married and have children, they're quite keen to get back into those careers or to, you know, they, they don't necessarily want to simply sort of be pushed into, into those traditional feminised uh, occupations. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... And I think this is why it's, in a way, very um, poignant to try to, to look back and remember the very complicated history um, of, of working motherhood uh, as we think about you know, how working parenthood may change in the future. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show 
by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist recommended facial moisturizer brand. Moving into the 80s and 90s, this was almost turned on its head in that women had a new pressure. A lot of working mothers felt the pressure to, quote, have it all. When and where did this idea originate and how pervasive was it? One of the texts that I write about in the book is Shirley Conran's best-selling household manual published in 1975, which is called Superwoman. Uh, And it was uh, a kind of iconic book that was uh, very sort of widely read in the 1970s. And the message that Shirley Conran uh, sends to her readers in that book is uh, that you shouldn't be spending all your time on housework. This book is about uh, telling you how to cut down on the time that you're spending doing boring chores so that you have more time to do the things that you want to do, which might include your job. But it's interesting how the phrase superwoman through the course of the 1980s, acquires a very different meaning. It becomes a term that signifies the woman who is successful on every front of her life. She has a wonderful family life, beautiful children, great, uh, you know, great husband, great marriage, but she's also brilliantly successful in her job and very much committed to her career. Uh, and then this then becomes uh, a kind of impossible, unattainable ideal. And I found that really fascinating, the way that that happened, because Conran then writes a follow-up to her book called Down with Superwoman, which she publishes in 1990 and says in the introduction, look, no, you, you misunderstood my title. It was always meant to be ironic. It was always meant to be about uh, telling women to, to slow down. There's uh, the wonderful inscription of Superwoman. The original book is Life's Too Short to Stuff a Mushroom. Uh, and she, you know, this is her philosophy. Uh, so she was very distressed by the way that it had been turned into this, this impossible ideal that was sort of holding up this, this image that women were then beating themselves up about and feeling stressed out and guilty about because they weren't managing to, to be successful uh, in all realms of life. Do you think that that's still um, the case today? Do you think a lot of women still feel that pressure? I think women do feel the pressure but I think what makes it worse or what compounds it is the fact that women feel that they face that pressure alone. So right through the 20th century, combining work and family life is something that women have had to take full responsibility for. So employers and the state, except at times of national emergency, like wartime, uh, have not seen it as their responsibility to help working parents reconcile family and work. Uh, This is seen as a private problem that women simply have to get on with. And I do think this is an interesting continuity 
through the 20th century. This uh, and it's I think it tells us something about the liberal welfare state regime that we find in Britain. So there's never been any legal obstacle to mothers going out to work. There haven't been efforts to stop, prohibit mothers, uh, the employment of mothers. And yet the attitude has always been, you're free to go out to work, but you've got to sort out all the childcare yourself. You've got to work out uh, the tensions for yourself. You've got, you know, this is a private affair for you to, to, to arrange. And I think that that's something which intensifies in the later 20th century when women are trying to pursue careers and are trying to compete with men. Because I think it's one thing to do a part-time job, which you can fit in around your sort of traditional duties as a housewife. I think in the later 20th century, when there's actually more scope for women to pursue their career ambitions, it becomes much, much more pressurised. And over that time, what are some of the survival techniques almost that women have employed in order to try and balance those two um, factors of life at home and life at work? Well, I ought to mention some of the helpful husbands uh, at this point, because although the book is very much about mothers, uh, I, of course, um, male partners and fathers play an important role in shaping the possibilities uh, for mothers who, who are trying to go out to work. And there are examples of men who are very supportive of their wives' careers. I mean, one of the earliest examples that I found was Elizabeth Garrett Anderson's husband. She was um, a pioneer female medic. She was the first British-trained woman to have her name on the medical register. And she married in 1870 a man called James Skelton Anderson. And we have some of their letters to each other in the archive. And it seems clear that he, he very much liked the idea of being married to this rather famous woman who was pioneering, who was uh, blazing a trail for women in this new professional field. And he was very supportive of her career and didn't want to try to, to stop her or slow her down in any way. And there are other examples of men through the, the period who, who you know, rather admire their working wives. But they tend to be in households that are quite well off, households that can employ servants and nannies, households where the husband's careers and prestige are not in any danger. The other a kind of iconic example from later in the 20th century would be Margaret Thatcher, who, of course, is in a sense, the the ultimate successful working mother who goes on to become prime minister. I think it's very significant that her husband, Dennis Thatcher, was very rich. So she could have a nanny, a full-time nanny, uh, to look after her twins. And I think it's also uh, important that he was retired by the time she became prime minister. So there was no sense that her career career success was in conflict or competition with his own. As the book is published, more parents than ever are currently at home with their children, working at the same time as you yourself are. Why do you think that these are still important stories to tell and important stories to look back on? The COVID-19 crisis and the lockdown has 
really illuminated these issues around who does what in the home, around the sharing of childcare, around uh, the need for flexibility in the workplace for working parents. And I think it will be very fascinating when the crisis is over to look back and to try to evaluate or to measure how working parents have coped and what the dynamics have been in households where husbands and wives or mothers and fathers have both been trying to work or have both been under pressure to work. There's already some quite worrying anecdotal evidence of mothers being under pressure to step back from their jobs in order to look after their children, being put involuntarily on furlough, uh, encountering difficulties when it comes to uh, trying to work from home. And I think it will be very, very important to see how that pattern progresses as the lockdown continues. But I mean, one can be more optimistic about it as well, because in some ways it could be that as video conferencing becomes more uh, established, including for organisations may have been quite resistant to the idea of, of, of video conferencing and allowing their employees to work from home. That could change. You know, it could be that that will have a, a positive legacy, both for mothers and fathers who want to work flexibly into the future. And I think this is why it's in a way very um, poignant to try to, to look back and remember the very complicated history um, of, of working motherhood uh, as we think about you know, how working parenthood may change in the future. That was Helen McCarthy. Her book, Double Lives, A History of Working Motherhood, is on sale now, published by Bloomsbury. You can also read a feature that Helen wrote on the history of childcare for BBC History magazine in our July issue. That's on sale now and also includes articles on the field of the cloth of gold, the Korean War, Lancaster bombers in the Second World War, Charles Dickens, Henry III and a whole lot more. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Wednesday when Grace Huxford will be discussing the Korean War. (laughs) 